Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Islam for Christians, episode 73. Biblical Figures in Islam, part 10. Ezekiel and the Missing Major Prophets. The Major Prophets. Biblically speaking, these prophets are called major pretty much for one reason. Because of the massive volumes of written works that they left behind. And there are four figures that are usually put into this group. There's Isaiah, who is most known, at least in Christianity, for his prophecies about Jesus. Then Ezekiel, with his spectacular visions. There's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who suffered with his people, alone and unmarried under orders from God himself. And then there's Daniel, most famous in the Bible for surviving the lion's den and maintaining his faith in a hostile and pagan world. One other thing that the major prophets have in common, aside from being such prolific authors and leaving incredible records behind, is that they're usually associated in some way with the Babylonian exile. Now, I'm not going to assume everyone knows what that is. I assume most of you do, but I don't want to leave anyone behind, and, and it's pretty important. So if you do know, just bear with me for a second here. Around 600 BC or so, the Babylonians conquered Judah, and they began these mass deportations of the Jews back to Babylon. Now, this would not be the first time this happened. The Romans would later do this shortly after Jesus' ministry. But it's an event, and what makes it unique, its importance to Jewish history, it just it can't be overstated how huge this is because it resulted in the destruction of the first temple. That was the one Solomon built. And it was the birth of one of the most powerful metaphors in human history. The idea, the notion of being in Babylon, in captivity, wrongly taken from your home to live in an alien place. It just works on so many levels. The Jamaicans would make an entire religion out of this concept more than 2,000 years later. And this exile, the Babylonian exile, this is a common thread among the major prophets because all of them touch on this event in some way. And for most of them, it's the dominating aspect of their careers as prophets. You know, they're all associated with this uh, through prophecies or direct witness or warnings about this event. So what's the Islamic take on these men and their works? Well, in Islam, these men are all considered prophets. And in Islam, only one is actually mentioned in the Quran. And even then, not actually by name. But it's the closest thing we have. <laughs> so before we get you know, to the major prophets and their absence in Islam. Well, that's not really accurate. Uh, they're absent in the Quran. They're not absent in Islam. Let's just talk about the Islamic Ezekiel. Now, this, this is the major prophet that may or may not have made the Quran. And also, uh, what did make his Quran was the specific vision of uh, Gog and Magog. Ezekiel. 
he is universally acknowledged as a prophet in Islam. And I should stress that much is not in question. But what is in question is whether he is actually mentioned in the Quran. The majority consensus is that he is. He was, however you want to put it. But there's some ambiguity to it, some mystery. Because, like I said, the Quran does not use his name. There is a small maybe mention in Surah 2, verse 243, which refers to resurrection of bones. Well, the Arabic, at least, you won't find that in many English translations. And then this is associated with Ezekiel, who had a vision of the Valley of Dry Bones. But few people think that this is worth mentioning. So they focus more so on the two mentions of a mysterious figure from the Quran they think could be Ezekiel. So who is that mysterious figure? When mentioning who many think could be Ezekiel, the Quran twice mentions a person named Thu al kafil Now, why the mystery? This isn't so much a name as it is a title. And this appears in the Quran without any historical or narrative context. So there's nothing you can really read into it or assume about it. You know, this is just one in a list of prophets you know, while using them as examples to prove a point in the larger context of a sermon. So we have a title and no context. So what is this title? What does it mean? Well, few people seem to agree on that either. But the words, through Al-Kafil, it literally means one who, possess, who possesses Kafil. So what is Kafil? That's just as complicated because it's not a straightforward term, which adds to the mystery. What does the word mean? Well, it really depends who you ask. There are generally two definitions that I've seen. The first, and this is the classical understanding and the most popular, is that it means the possessor of the fold or the possessor of a double portion, or the possessor of a cloth that folds. So some kind of doubling or folding. Now, I love that double portion part, because it almost sounds like Elisha, who you may remember was given a double dose of Elijah's power. The problem is, no one actually thinks that Thu al kafil is Elisha, because this mystery man, this Thu al kafil is actually mentioned in a series of prophets in the Quran and listed right after Elisha. So it wouldn't make sense if it was him. But what does any of that have to do with Ezekiel, the, um, the fold, the double portion? You know, what is it about this that made people think? Ezekiel. There are some Muslim scholars that actually think trying to identify this person is completely pointless. And I kind of lean toward that side too. But for those who try to identify this person as Ezekiel, here's their reasoning. Ezekiel as Thu al kafal It doesn't actually start with the definition of the word, funny enough. 
That comes later. It actually starts with an old story from a town called Kefil. In this town, legend has it, they claim that Kefil is simply the Arabized version of Ezekiel, or also that this is where Ezekiel was buried. Working from that, people just kind of filled in the blanks and decided it, it kind of makes sense. One example um, I'll give you is from the Quranic commentator Yusuf Ali, and he bases his guess on, of all things, an 18th century German explorer. This is from his commentary on Surah 21, verse 85. It's page 841, maybe, depending which edition you have. It's right at the bottom. If we accept Dhu al-Kafal to be not an epithet, but an Arabized form of Ezekiel, it fits the context. Ezekiel was a prophet in Israel who was carried away to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar after his second attack on Jerusalem. His book is included in the English Bible. He was chained and bound and put into prison, and for a time he was dumb. I think they mean mute. He bore all with his patience and constancy and continued to reprove boldly the evils in Israel. In a burning passage, he denounces false leaders in words which are eternally true. Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do not feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat, and ye clothe you with the wool. Ye kill them with that are fed, but ye fed not the flock. The diseased have ye not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken. So that follows a part where he talks about the 18th century German explorer you know, and that town called Kiffel. And he kind of throws it all together in a way, honestly, I, I don't fully understand. <laughs> but there are just two massive holes in that story. As far as, you know, but let, let's just talk about the German explorer. Why does it take a German to find that this town named Kiffel has something to do with Ezekiel. Shouldn't that have been known throughout Arabia? I mean, for a really long time? Was this a lost legend, like an Indiana Jones movie? Did an outsider really have to go and discover this? Is it possible for something like that to be lost to history until an outsider comes around and asks questions? I don't know. It, it's possible. It just doesn't seem right. And then there's the other problem I'm seeing here that, it, that obviously isn't addressed. If Kuffel is the name for Ezekiel, what is it doing in a title? Th that's terrible grammar. Does that word construction make any sense there? The possessor of Ezekiel. Either it doesn't make sense or it's poetic license. Impossible to say definitely you know, which again is the type of thing you want in a religious text, something that is ideally hiding a deeper truth than what is obvious on the surface. You know, Ali's opinion is hardly the only one, and it's a good thing too, because again, I still don't get it. He, he just professes that, oh, here's this person with the double fold, 
and this makes sense, and then gives a reason that has nothing to do with that. Now, some also have drawn the conclusion that this same person is Job, or the son of Job, or Zechariah. It's all over the place. It's just for some reason, Ezekiel seems to be the most popular reading. And just for fun, I'll give you yet another interpretation, a different way of reading this. It's rooted in a different reading of the word itself, actually. You know, so instead of talking about this person of double or the fold or whatever, um, definition number two here focuses on the root of the word, kafel, that du al kafel comes from the verb kafala. It's the noun form of the verb, kafala, which means to support, to vouch for, to sponsor, to be responsible for, and so on. Some similar nouns are, for example, a deposit, a guarantee, bail money, collateral, and so on. Now, in this interpretation, the al-kafal means one who becomes responsible or one who has pledged himself to do something. Now, theoretically, that could be just about anyone. But given the list of names it is wedged between, remember, this is, a, <clears throat> this is given in just a list of prophets. You've seen that in actually previous episodes of biblical figures in Islam. I think particularly Elijah and Elisha. So in this interpretation, given its presence in just this prophet list, Perhaps the al-kafal simply means a prophet, any prophet, one who has been given the great responsibility of a prophet, one who has been sponsored by God, supported by God. Sometimes it's really that simple. Muhammad did say at one point that the al-kafal was actually an Israelite who became a righteous and godly man after witnessing the sin of his fellow Israelites. Which is nice, but that's still pretty vague. That's, that's not a name. You know, I'm sure plenty of Israelites did that. Which lends credence, actually, to the any prophet theory. Not even Muhammad can say who this person is. Because really, you can backfill that story or that description I just gave you to give just about any biblical figure you like even a Christian Jesus. If kefal means vouching for, you know, who vouches for someone more than a savior who granted righteousness to believers? So maybe Ezekiel is in the Quran. Maybe not. But one of his most famous visions clearly did make it. And I promised this a while ago. It seems like well, a while ago. I'm talking about Gog and Magog. Now, again, I'm not going to assume everyone is familiar with the vision of Gog and Magog, but it begins as a two-chapter prophecy by Ezekiel, and it is then referenced in the book of Revelation as well, much later. Basically, a great army invades Israel, disturbing the peace of the people of God in what is an unprovoked attack. And God intervenes to defeat Gog and Magog or Gog from Magog. Sometimes it's 
uh, God can be a person, but God could be a place. It doesn't really matter. The point here is it's an evil force, and God will defeat it. Now, the biblical version is pretty long. So just to familiarize those of you who are not familiar with this, I'll just read my favorite part. This is the end of chapter 38 of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, just so you know, this is God speaking in this narrative. In my zeal and fiery rage, I proclaim that on that day, there will be a great earthquake in the land of Israel. The fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, every creature that crawls upon the ground, and all mankind on the face of the earth will tremble at my presence. The mountains will be thrown down. The cliffs will collapse, and every wall will fall to the ground. And I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the Lord God, and every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour out torrents of rain, hailstones, fire, and sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. I will magnify and sanctify myself, and will reveal myself in the sight of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now that sounds a little like an early Quranic surah, doesn't um, This was a prophecy given by Ezekiel around the time of the Babylonian exile. So when this prophecy is supposed to happen isn't clear. It will happen in the latter days, so maybe sometime in Israel's future, or maybe the end of time, or maybe both. That's something that the Bible's book of Revelation hints at. So it is a prophecy that spans the Old and New Testaments, and then beyond that to Islam. Gog and Magog are in the Quran, but as with many things similar to this, the, the name is different in Arabic. So God and Magog, I just said God, Gog and Magog are Yajuj and Majuj. What makes this fascinating in the Islamic context, though, is the timing of the story. What is said, it's a bit different than what is in Ezekiel, and we'll get to those details later, but the timing. In the Quran, this is not a prophecy. It's not forward-looking. It's actually backward-looking. It's history. The Quran is telling you something that has happened, not something that will happen. But at the same time, Islam does use the story in an apocalyptic manner as well, just like the Bible does. And um, <laughs> the apocalyptic portion here. This actually doesn't come from the Quran. So this came from Muhammad himself. So I'm moving on from the Quranic story to Muhammad's sort of commentary on the Quranic story. So Muhammad said about this, Gog and Magog will pour forth and cover the earth at the end of time. Muslims will hide in their cities while Gog and Magog eat, the drink, eat and drink everything on the earth until God destroys them all by sending worms to bore into their necks. So that's the, the visual that Muhammad gives, but I want to kind of go back 
to the Quranic story because I realized I actually haven't read it for you. So here it is. The Quranic story. Uh, this features another mystical figure, uh, and his name is Dhu al-Karnayn. There's the Dhu prefix again. You know, Dhu al-Karnayn basically means the person of the two horns. But that's almost certainly a symbol for two of something. Two ages, two horizons, and so on. So when you think about this person's experience, just try to think about a historical figure that could be Dhu al-Karnayn. In this story, and I'm reading it soon, I promise. In this story, this figure basically has a run-in with Gog and Magog, taking the story out of Israel, maybe. Or maybe Israel's people are the innocents, and Dhu al-Karnayn is defending them from Gog and Magog. Uh, don't know for sure. Funny enough, there are plenty of commentators who think that this whole episode takes place in the mountains between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Maybe. I mean, God knows best, as the Muslims say. But regardless of location or even peoples, it is a pretty cool story. When it comes to religious stories involving walls, you know, it tends to involve them being breached or crumbling. But in this case, they actually build a gigantic wall. All right, I'm sorry. Enough spoilers, okay? Here's the story. This is the Quran, Surah 18, verses 83 to 102. I prefer Mustafa Kitab for storytelling in general, usually. Uh, so here it is. This is the Mustafa Kitab version of that. They ask you, O Prophet, about Dhu al-Karnayn. Say, I will relate to you something of his narrative. Surely we established him in the land and gave him the means to all things. So he traveled a course, until he reached the setting point of the sun, which appeared to him to be setting in a spring of murky water, where he found some people. We said, Oh, Zu al-Karnayn, either punish them or treat them kindly. He responded, Whoever does wrong will be punished by us, then will be returned to their Lord, who will punish them with a horrible torment. As for those who believe and do good, they will have the finest reward, and we will assign them easy commands. Then he traveled a different course, until he reached the rising point of the sun. He found it rising on a people for whom we had provided no shelter from it. So it was, and we truly had full knowledge of him. Then he traveled a third course, until he reached a pass between two mountains. He found in front of them a people who could hardly understand his language, but they pleaded, Oh, Thu Al-Karnayn, surely Gog and Magog are spreading corruption throughout the land. Should we pay you tribute, provided that you build a wall between us and them? He responded, What my Lord has provided for me is far better, but assist me with resources, and I will build a barrier between you and them. Bring me blocks of iron. And then, when he had filled up the gap between the two mountains, he ordered, Blow. When the iron became red hot, he said, Bring me molten copper to pour over it. And so the enemies could neither scale nor tunnel through it. He declared, This is a mercy from my Lord. But when the promise of my Lord comes to pass, he will level it to the ground 
and my Lord's promise is ever true. On that day, we will let them surge like waves over one another. Later, the trumpet will be blown, and we will gather all people together. On that day, we will display hell clearly for the disbelievers, those who turned a blind eye to my reminder and could not stand listening to it. Do the disbelievers think they can simply take my servants as lords instead of me? We have surely prepared hell as an accommodation for the disbelievers. So the last few lines there may have gotten a little confusing because it can sometimes be hard to tell when the voice goes from that of being through Al-Karnain to the voice of God. But in the end, the very end, that's pretty clearly God's voice talking about his servants and hell and all that, not through Al-Karnain talking about his army. So who is this guy through Al-Karnain, this mysterious figure? There's no consensus on that either. That's a theme with anything related to the Islamic Ezekiel. You know, remember that Thu al-Karnayn is not an apocalyptic figure. You know, Muhammad only said that Gog and Magog would be back, not this person. You know, this guy, Thu al-Karnayn, he's just a historical figure. So it has to be someone in the past. And there is quite a large period of time to choose from here because for example, Ezekiel died around 622. And the span between Ezekiel's time and the revelation of the Quran, that's about the same as the distance between the Quran and our time. That's a pretty big span and a whole lot of people to choose from. Now, again, I do want to emphasize there's no consensus on this. There's no like Islam says X, Y, and Z. This is just fun speculation. And many very smart Muslims have rejected Thu Al-Qarnayn being the person I'm about to name. But really, it's the most obvious. And everyone in the world probably knows this name. Alexander the Great. The man of two horns. The giant historical figure who is actually featured on gold coins at the time, wearing two horns on his head. And who else moved from where the sun rises to where the sun sets and could do something so epic? Not that there's any record of Alexander the Great doing anything like this or building this kind of wall. But to be fair, aside from the Quran, there's no historical record of anyone at all ever doing the type of thing described in the Quran, building a, a, a structure like that except maybe the Chinese with the Great Wall, but it wasn't nearly as cool as the Quran's wall. Because honestly, I mean, no offense to China, but the Great Wall isn't that great. It, it's just really long, you know? So if you're going to pick someone here this, to be this Du Al-Karnayn character, if, if you have to, I think Alexander is your best choice. However, there is a gigantic problem with that theory. You may have thought about this. Thu Al-Karnayn was a righteous man, right? Alexander was a lot of things. I wouldn't really call him a righteous man, particularly from a Islamic perspective or a Christian perspective or a Jewish perspective, right? a lot of perspectives. Now, Alexander was a pagan. 
So who really knows? But it is fun to think about, isn't it? You know, uh, particularly for those of you who like history. And, you know, that's a theme with this and with Ezekiel in general. He and the major prophets left behind some great prophecies. And for those of you who go to church, you hear the ones Christians believe that foretold Jesus. You know, they're read quite often. But these prophets play a very, very small, almost shockingly small, a small role in Islam. It's hard to imagine Christianity without Isaiah in particular. And Daniel is a feature in every Christian child's early religious education. But in Islam, not so much. Not that they reject these prophets, quite the opposite. It's just that, you know, they're not featured in Islam to the same degree as they are featured in Christianity. I mean, if you really wanted to stretch things, you could say there's a hint of Daniel in the Islamic story of Abraham. You know, Abraham survives a fire in a manner very similar to Daniel and his confrontation with Nebuchadnezzar. But really, you know, this is just similarities and coincidences. The Quran simply is not all that interested with this time period in Jewish history, the Babylonian exile. And does that in itself mean anything? Your guess is as good as mine. If the Quran ignores something, it could mean that it's just not very important. But on the other hand, it could also mean that it had nothing to correct in those stories either. I managed to do whole episodes earlier on Elijah and on Jonah. But really, in the bigger Islamic picture, the Muslim version of history, for the most part, basically jumps from Solomon to Jesus and barely touches anything in between, biblically at least. So read into that what you will. You know, I think my best theory about that is Arabs just weren't all that interested in Jewish history, mainly because they weren't Jewish. You know, <laughs> there's no, no fault in not being Jewish. You know, they may not have been as interested in the political stuff and the genealogy and the story of the nation. You know, and that that's the subject of the minor and major prophets in many ways. And the exile, much of that area, area, era, much of that era, that time in history is written almost as a theodicy, you know, an explanation of the suffering of a good people an attempt to come to grips with the destruction of the temple and the pain being inflicted on God's chosen people. That kind of thing is more compelling to a religion like Christianity, with its belief in the redemptive, purifying power of suffering. I mean, for us, for Christians, God himself went through this same process, this idea of righteous suffering. You know, you'll find some of that in Shia Islam, too. That's a whole other episode I may do in the future. But for most Muslims, particularly the vast majority who are Sunni, you know, this just doesn't strike a very triumphant tone. You'll see the same theme precisely in the crucifixion. You know, I hope I now 
if you've listened to all these episodes, you're probably getting a feel for Islamic tone, Islamic sensibility. You know, and there are just some things that fit into that and other things that don't. And that's about everything I have for the, the major prophets and Ezekiel and all that. Um, although, like I said, the, uh, <laughs> the Islamic version tends to jump from Solomon to Jesus, but we're not doing that, uh, you know, for us. And by that, I mean myself and this audience, Christians and Muslims, you know, we will not be jumping from Solomon to Jesus. We are still in the Old Testament and... I do still have a bit more on that. So until then, thank you, and I'll talk to you next time. Inshallah. Thank you for listening to Islam for Christians. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to keep this show ad-free, you can also visit my Patreon page and subscribe. I'm at patreon.com slash Islam for Christians. That's patreon.com slash Islam for Christians.